The substance of what we believe comes through Jesus. So why go back to the Old Testament and think, okay, well, that must be clearer than this New Testament? It doesn't make any sense. That's the first thing. It's not the shadow, but the substance. He makes a better covenant. It's the substance of, of knowing who God is. But also, it's not something that's worn out, but something that's ever new. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, we'll come back to that in a second, God says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is pretty plain, pretty obvious, right? The, this, the point is simple. If God says He's going to bring a second, guess what that means? The first one wasn't enough. Why do we need a new covenant? Because the old covenant wasn't enough. That's the whole point. If, if the old covenant was enough, we wouldn't need a new covenant, but it's not. That's the whole point. So why wasn't it enough? Look at verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because, notice, they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Notice what he, remember what he said in verse 8? Because finding fault with them, as he says in verse 9, they, speaking of God's people, the Israelites, they did not continue in my covenant. See, the insufficiency was not with the old covenant, it's with us. It's with people. This is really important to understand. Sometimes we want to look at the Old Testament and go, man, I find fault with that, and I find fault with that. But actually, forget about the things you don't understand about the Old Testament law, things that seem strange to you. And just think about the things that you know are clear. Think about the reality that the Old Testament says, you know, you, you have no right to accuse somebody publicly without two or three witnesses. That's one of the laws of the Old Testament. Think about what it says about the fact that you shall welcome the stranger in your midst. You should not treat him spitefully. Think about when it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Old Testament, in case you didn't know. And think about those laws. Are those good laws? Are those easy to do? No, they're impossible. How many of us have been so quick to judge somebody based on perception, or even worse, based on gossip? Somebody says something about somebody else, and we just assume it's true. Did you see it? So why would you assume it's true? See, the problem was not with what God had said in the Old Covenant. The problem was with us. We can't do it. We're not able to do it. Now, if you drop down to verse 13, what does he say? It says, in that God says, a new covenant uh, he, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, that word obsolete used twice in that verse. It literally means is wearing out. In other words, listen, this old covenant was meant to be temporary. It wasn't meant to be permanent. We all just spent several days, or many of us spent several days, living under a very thin sheet of canvas. Not even canvas, it's some sort of wacky material that they make now that they put some spray on and you're supposed to stay in there. And it's fun when it's temporary because you go in there and you're, it's kind of something different. But I'll tell you, you go in there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and it's like a sauna. It's horribly hot. You go in there at 2 o'clock in the morning and it's freezing cold. And you know what you think? You think, praise God, this is temporary. Soon and very soon I'll go back to my comfy bed and my comfy house. Because that's a temporary dwelling. It's meant to be temporary. 
God designed the Old Covenant to be something that wears out. It's temporary. Now understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to make clear to these guys. He wants them to recognize, listen, you're tempted to relate to God in a way that's not meant to be forever. You're wanting to go back and put on sort of this old garment. You want to live in this old tent. It's wearing thin. It can provide no shelter for you, no warmth for you, no comfort for you. Why would you go back to that? It's pointless. It's interesting when he says that it's growing old and ready to vanish away, disappear. It would only be about 20 years after the time that this author wrote this, that Jerusalem would be sacked, the temple would be destroyed, and the Jews could no longer make sacrifices. They've never had a temple since to make sacrifices, to actually make atonement for their sins according to the Old Testament law. It was like God made sure that he destroyed that to say, look, do you get it? This is not the way anymore. It's worn out. It's done. Now, Jesus talked about things passing away. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. See, the Bible talks about, in the last book of the Bible is actually a new beginning. It talks about this new heavens and this new earth. This heavens, this earth, this is going to pass away. It's temporary. But what Jesus says, listen, what Jesus says is permanent. The covenant he makes with us is permanent. I want you to let that sink in for a second. How much of our life is based upon what's going to happen in the 60, 70, 80, 90 years, if we're lucky, that we live? It's based on the here and the now. And yet Jesus says this here and now is temporary. It's wearing thin. It's going to be gone. But what he says to us, what he promises to us is eternal. Now, this is not to say there's no value in the temporary. This heavens and earth, this, this old one here that we're in now, Jesus made it. God made this heaven and the earth, right? We should enjoy the good things that God's made in this good creation. But it's temporary. It's temporary. It's going to pass away. Interesting. The, the, the Scripture tells us, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he himself is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Isn't, isn't it amazing how quick we are to be tempted to go back to the old? I like the old. It's comfortable. It's predictable. I can control it. But God calls us out of the old into the new. And this is exactly what's going on with the Hebrews. He's saying, listen, I know because of how difficult your life can be in following Jesus, how persecuted you can be by your own people your own fellow Jews, that you want to go back and maybe I'll just kind of keep the form of Judaism. I'll make the sacrifices. I'll go to the high priest, so on and so forth. I'll do these things because it's easier. It's more comfortable. It keeps me from being persecuted. But don't you know that's wearing out? Don't you know soon and very soon that'll be completely gone? Don't you know in Christ all things become new? See, this is so important for us to understand because Christianity is not about us it's not about us becoming just better people. The, the New Testament is not a, the world's first self-help book. In fact, really, it's a self-helpless book. It's to show how helpless you are in yourself. That's why Jesus says, deny yourself, come follow me. And the, well, the New Testament is what Jesus talked about 
was this reality that we don't just need to become nice people, we need to become new people. That's why he calls for our death and resurrection. And that's what's such great news. He provides our death and resurrection through his death and resurrection. That we don't have to keep doing the old, being the old. We can live in newness. We can walk, as Paul says in Romans 6, we can walk in newness of life. That's what he calls us to. See, it wasn't just the Hebrews that are tempted to go back to the old, it's us that's tempted to go back to the old. <laughs> we think it's, it's easier to be old. This is, the, this is why religion is big business. Seriously. If I was to, I'll tell you what, in fact, this happens. If I preach a really tough sermon where maybe I'm kind of challenging you guys to do the things you ought to do, and I give you a list of things to do, and even though I try to be really clear about, look, we only do and respond to what God has done, but a lot of times what happens is people are most appreciative of those sermons where I said, you're bad, do better, you're bad, do better, because people love to feel guilty and think they can fix it. We love it when people tell us, you can do better. I can't do better. I will try harder. Because then we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look what I've done. I'm a better person than I was last week. But what the covenant that Jesus makes is not about something that's going to wear out. It's something that's ever new. It's about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our thinking changes. Our heart changes, which we'll get to in just a second. So it's not the shadow, but the substance. The new, this, this better covenant Jesus makes, it's not the shadow, but the substance. It's not something worn out, but something ever new. And also, to be really clear, this is not about an upgraded religion, but about a perfect relationship. Christianity is not Judaism 2.0, okay? Christianity is something brand new. It's something Jesus saying, look, what you did with Judaism was twist the purpose of God's revelation to you. And I'm untwisting it and showing you what this is meant to really be. It's a restoring of all things. Now, you, in your Bible, it may be that from around verse 8, halfway through verse 8, where it says, behold, all the way down through verse 12, that the words are all in italics. Is that the way it is in your version? So I italicize, you know, it's kind of at an angle. It's that way because he's actually quoting something. The author is quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 34. And what's interesting about the context of, of Jeremiah there is that it's a time in Israel's history where they continue to mess up over and over again. It's, it, they're not in a fruitful revival time. They've, they've blown it over and over again. And God says to them, okay, listen, even though you keep blowing it, here's, here's the truth. I'm going to create a new covenant for you. And God spells out what this new covenant is, okay? Now, look what he says. Look what God says about this new covenant in verse 10. He says, for this is the covenant. Notice he says that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I love this because so much of what religion is, is us trying to find new and better ways to appease God. 
So the assumption is that there's a God who's made us, a God that we're accountable to, and we want to find new and better ways to do that. And if we're really confident and positive people, we think, I got this, I got this, I know what I can do. And again, we try to just kind of bring an upgraded religion to God. But what God describes this new covenant is not about us improving ourselves, but about God changing us from the inside out. What does he say? He says, I'm going to write my laws, the laws they broke, the laws they would forget, the laws they didn't understand. He says, I'm going to write them on their hearts. I'm going to put them in their minds, he says, and I'm going to write them on their hearts. The word for write there, it means to inscribe. It's this idea of not just kind of jotting some notes on a piece of paper, but carving in stone something permanent. That he's going to etch the truth in our minds. Have you had this experience to where, you know, you hear, uh, you know, you hear God's word taught, or you read something, and you you get really just like, oh, it just kind of jumps out at you. You think, man, that's good. But then later on, you you go to sort of you're doing your own thing, you're living your own life, and that thing comes flooding back to you like, oh, and you feel that conviction. And I just read that this morning, and here I've just gone against it. And it's like you you can't shake that word loose. It's because God's etching it in your heart. One of the things that, that, one of the ways that we know that God has actually saved us is that something's happened to our thinking, something's happened to our perspectives, that we just can't shake loose what God's done. Even if we don't like what God's done, even if we don't like what God said, even if we get frustrated and we want to push back, we can't seem to shake it. You know why? Because when God begins to truly speak to us, He etches it in our stony hearts. He starts speaking to us through His Word. This is what He does. He changes us from the inside out. Interesting that when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he describes them. He's really kind of talking about his own authority in their life. And here's, here's what he says about his ministry to them. He says, clearly, in 2 Corinthians 3, 3, he says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. In the context, Paul's talking about his authority as an apostle, one who would have have the, the authority and the ability to say, this is what God says to you, this is what God says about you. And he's saying, you guys are the credibility of our authority because it's obvious that God has written the truth of Christ on your heart and it can't be erased. It's there. This is what God wants to do. God wants to change us from the inside out. Listen, If you have no desire to know what God says, if you have no desire to do what God says, if you have no clue what God says, (laughs) you need this inward change before anything else. This is where it starts. This is why Jesus says to a very religious man whom Jesus called the teacher of Israel, he says to them, you must be born again. You gotta be born from above. The Spirit needs to do something in your heart where you're changed from the inside out. I didn't ask for permission, so I hope I don't embarrass him, but I remember when Pip, 
was first coming to faith, and we were having a conversation over lunch one day. And you could tell he was nervous about bringing it up. And he says to me, he goes, you know, some time ago I would have thought, okay, you guys are crazy when you say things like, God saved me. But I think I know what that means now, that God saves us. I think I know what that means. And something had clicked in his head and his heart. Something had begun to change. A switch had gone off. What was happening? God was writing in his heart his truth. He was changing him from the inside out. Continues to do so as he does in all of us. This is what God does. This is what the new covenant is about. Not about us changing ourselves, but God changing us from the inside out. Verse 11, he says, None of them shall teach his neighbors and, his, and none his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, this is not saying under the new covenant there's no need for teaching. The whole New Testament talks about the need for teaching. Jesus taught tons. His apostles all taught. The Bible tells us that we should be those who are uh, uh, hungry to hear the word of God. But it's saying here is this. There's no longer a need for a mediator. I don't know if, if in your experience or maybe you have friends who've had this experience where they feel like they can't really talk to God directly. They need to talk to, talk to somebody else. Maybe they have kind of a, a Catholic background and so they feel like they have to pray to the saints or they have to go to a priest to confess. And they feel like they just can't go to God himself. Do you realize what this is saying here? That the author is trying to make it really clear. There's no need to go anywhere but directly to God himself. See, this same God who's going to, who, um, who brings this inward change establishes with us a personal relationship. Now, I wonder if, if, if because many of us here have been around church for a while and maybe because we've heard this so much, we kind of go, yeah, 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 I know, I know. God wants a personal relationship with us. And it just kind of seems commonplace or obvious. And we forget how radical that is. I mean, think about this. We are just one planet amongst an innumerable amount of planets in a galaxy. And just one galaxy, an innumerable amount of galaxies in the universe. We have no idea what's beyond that. And we are, 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 are just one person on one planet. And God says, I want to know you. And I want you to know me. You ever gotten nervous when you met someone famous? I mean, I get nervous around people that, that aren't really famous, but I just know they have, they've done more stuff than me. I remember meeting Pastor Chuck Smith, the guy who founded our movement. My pastor that I served with at the time insisted that I go say hi for him. I was humiliated. I didn't want to do this. So I go up to Pastor Chuck, who, if you ever listen to any of his tapes online, he's gone home to the Lord now, but you can listen to his stuff online. He kind of talks like John Wayne. But he smiles at everyone. So I went up to Chuck, and I was like so nervous, right? I was so nervous that I said, hey, hey Chuck, uh, my name's John, and I'm just here to say hi for Pastor Pete and his wife, Marcy, down in El Centro. And he says, oh, yes, tell them I said hello. I said, okay, and I walked away. I just felt like this little geeky kid. And he's just a man. He's just one man of one movement that probably many of you never even heard of before. 
But I was so nervous because I thought that guy represents something way bigger than me. The creator of the universe, the one who made Chuck Smith and made you and made this entire universe, the one who says the universe is the size of the span of his hand. That's the tip of your pinky, the tip, tip of your thumb. The universe is this big, God says. That which we can't even fathom, he says it's this big. That, God says, I want to call you by name and know you by name. That's the new covenant. That's what Jesus provides. Have you ever noticed in the, in the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, how often Jesus called people by name? And have you noticed that often he didn't just say their name once? He would say, Mary, Mary, or Martha, Martha, or Peter, Peter. And that, in a Hebrew mindset, was this idea of intimacy. If you said a person's name twice, it meant you were on intimate terms. And you see this with Jesus, calling people by name. Even people that didn't know him yet. Remember little Zacchaeus, the tax collector, one who had been despised by his fellow Jews. He climbs up, to a, up into a tree, very uncivilized thing to do, just because so he wants to see what this Jesus guy is about. And what does Jesus say? Hey, short dude, I want to eat with you. No. He says, Zacchaeus, today I will dine with you. He calls him by name. Do you know the Bible says in, in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, that Jesus created the universe? He's the creator of God. And he called people by name. This is the new covenant. He calls you by name. He doesn't want to just know us in some vague plurality. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be so intimate with him that you cry out to him, Abba, Father. That's the new covenant. And notice he says, from the least of them to the greatest. Look, your size, your age, your social standing has nothing to do with you knowing God through Jesus. You could be the dumbest person in the world. You could be the smartest person in the world. You could be the poorest person in the world. You could be the richest person in the world. You could be a failure. You could be a success. You could be much as highly esteemed. You could be lowly esteemed. It makes zero difference. All that matters is that you come to God through Christ. You, that's the new covenant. God wants to know you. <laughs> as Neil prayed, why wouldn't we draw near to him? The creator of the universe wants to know us. The scripture says it this way in 1 John. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. We can look at Jesus and know that's what God's like. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. This is the new covenant, a relationship with the living God. See, what we're calling you to here at Servants Church is not some sort of upgraded religion. It is really a perfect relationship. This, this creator God has made you, not because he needs you, but because he wants you to know him. There's nothing greater he can give but himself. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, that sounds good, but, you know, I'm not ready to admit that I'm sinful. Or maybe you're at this place where you're kind of going, well, yeah, but maybe my sins are so bad, there's no way God wants that for me. Or even if he wants that from me, I'm so bad. I, like you said, the covenant's good, but I'm the one who's insufficient. 
But look what he says. This is part of the new covenant, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, literally their injustice. And, I, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. How is it that God can forget what we do, can, fit, can forget the sins that we've done against him and against others? How can he forget that when it's happening all the time? It's not just like, you know, oh, I sinned once when I was 13. I'm so glad God forgot about that. I sinned like 30 seconds ago. You just didn't know it. <laughs> we all sin all the time. We rebel against God's lawless deeds or against God's lawful deeds, His, His lawful commands. We, we, we don't do what's just or what's right all the time. How can God say He's going to forget that? If He's just, how can He forget that? Seriously, think about some of the huge injustices that have happened. You think about, there's 13,000 university students at the University of East Anglia. 13,000. So statistically, there's a, there's, there are hundreds of girls that have been raped as they've been students there, statistically. Statistically, there are dozens of rapists on that campus. Do you like the idea that God in the New Covenant will remember their sins no more? I don't know about you, but that bothers me. Just leaving it there, that kind of bothers me. Until I realized that in my heart of hearts, I could be that rapist. When I realize in my heart of hearts that I am just as wicked as anybody else, then I think, God, is there a way that you cannot remember my sins? How does that happen? How is it that you can be just and still forgive my sins? Listen to what the scripture says. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. Theologians call this verse the, the great exchange. See, here's the way it works. When we recognize that God does see how unjust we are, He does see how rebellious we are to His, his good laws. He does see how far we fall short of His standard of goodness. He does see that. If He's just, He needs to deal with that Here's the reality. God says if we're willing to confess that and see that, that Jesus took that on himself, he actually became that, that not only will he take away all our sins, past, present, and future, but listen, because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, he fulfilled all the covenants of God, not just the new covenant. He fulfilled all the covenants of God so that as the righteous one, he then gives us, he takes all our sinfulness and then gives us his righteousness. Therefore, God can be just and still say, I completely justify you, I forgive you, I can render you as righteous or innocent. That's the new covenant. It's this guarantee that we can come to God in a perfect relationship, we can enjoy a perfect relationship. It doesn't mean that we're perfect people. There's still a need for us to confess our sins. The relationship, though, is perfect. The position that we have is perfect. The right standing we have with God is perfect. Why? Because of what Jesus has done under the new covenant. Because of this new covenant, this new contract. 
I wonder how many of us in this room relate to God on the new covenant. I don't think I've said anything today that most of us didn't already know. But I wonder how many of us are actually relating to God that way. Are we coming to God as if the covenant was, all do this, God says, if you do that. Are we relating to God as if there's an if clause there? Where the new covenant is, is God saying, I'm going to do this for you. Just trust me, I'm going to do this for you. Do you relate to God that he has provided for us that perfect relationship? Do you relate to God that he has said, look, here's what you have now, an ever new standing with me. Do you relate to God as that one who's ever seated, Jesus has ever seated. We are perfectly seated with him according to Ephesians. Do you relate to God that way? See, here's the thing. We know we're guilty. People point out our guilt. The devil points out our guilt. Our spouses point out our guilt. Our children point out our guilt. We know we're guilty. But God in his grace under the new covenant has said, I've rendered you innocent. So seek me. I want you guys to bow your heads and close your eyes. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to make sure that you have an opportunity here to enter into a covenant with God if you haven't done so. A covenant is a contract based in love. That's what it is. It's a contact based in love. This new covenant that Jesus establishes is him saying, I want to have a perfect loving relationship with you. You just have to trust me. I wonder if there's anybody here who's realizing they need to trust Jesus for the first time. They need to be in right covenant with him. Listen, this is the only option he gives us, but it's also the best option he could give us. Are you in that covenant with him? And for us that are believers, are we relating to God in this New Testament sense, in this new covenant sense, or are we relating to God in the old covenant sense? Are we tempted to go back to old ways because it's easier to be religious than actually just to relate to this God? Let's ask God to forgive us and to create in us a clean heart. 